0: Okay, Okay, let's make sure that the uh, sound room is working. Yes, we're all good. I still heard the pulpit mic. Are we all good? Test, 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 test. All right. So this morning uh, is a special morning. We have not only a holiday weekend, but uh, also a special event this evening. Uh, time of fellowship. It's kind of an annual exercise, uh, and um, we all go, get to go out to Chuck and Gina's uh, for the evening. And uh, in, light, uh, in light of that, I decided I thought this would be a good time, especially in line with Chuck's uh, series that he's been starting over the summer going through James 1 on the subject of trials. Uh, I thought I would do a special message. I chose uh, Psalm 27 for today's study, and when I was uh, talking to Chuck earlier, uh, when I told him what we were studying, he said, oh, that's good. This will be a good message for Gina. So, Gina, this is just for you. And uh, for the rest of you, uh, thank you for coming in for Gina's personal public counseling. Um, now, th- I think this is going to be uh, one of those uh, subjects that we're all going to find both uh, uh, instructive and comforting and confrontational. The the title of this morning's message is Waiting on God, or if you like a longer one, How to Wait on God in Times of Trouble. One of the things that uh, Chuck has walk through with us over the summer from James chapter 1 is the fact that we're all going to face trials, many and varied kinds of trials. In fact, when uh, you read in your English Bible there in James 1, it says, count it all joy when you face various kinds of trials. The word uh, um, various is the idea of multicolored. All right? So it's various hues and shades which basically means that all of us are going to face many and very different types of trials. And even if we all go through the same set of circumstances, the same event, uh, it's different for each one of us. It's going to hit each and every one of us uniquely. But the instruction that James gives us is that we are to count it all joy when we face those kinds of trials and not look for a way out of the trial, right? We are to let uh, endurance have its perfect result so that we may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. We're to go through that trial and, and seeking to honor God and to continue to seek to honor God no matter how hard it gets, even without that trial ever letting up. That needs to be our view, our, purpose, our, our focus in the context of trials. And given the fact that there are many and varied kinds of trials... And given the fact that if you did, went through and did a theology of trials, and I've, done, I've dabbled in this periodically with some series that I've done in the past. Someday maybe I'll, uh, I'll do a full series on the subject of trials and develop a theology of trials from the whole of the Bible. But when you, when you look at what the Bible teaches about trials, you learn that according to Hebrews 12, we go through trials, hardships, difficult times, Uh, challenging circumstances, sometimes in a disciplinary sense. God is treating us as His children, and He is training us not to get out of line. Same thing we do with our kids. Right, And so there are going to be times when you're going through temporal consequences of your own offenses and your own sins, and God is going to bring those consequences to bear in such a way as to bring you back into obedience and, uh, of His will and conformity with His Son. He's actually purposefully... Uh, now, that's not a punishment. Keep in mind, the punishment for sin is universally... Eternal condemnation for Christians. According to Romans 8, if that, if that chapter is still true, which it is, then there is no condemnation for me if I'm in Christ. I'm in a no condemnation status. I'm a child of God and nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he is causing all things to work together because I am one who loves him and I love him because he chose me in him before the foundation of the world. I am one of his people and nothing can change that. My sins are fully taken care of at the cross. However, he still uses Temporal circumstances and temporal consequences when I step out of line, when I rebel against him to bring me home, so to speak. You can count on reaping in a temporal context what you sow. If you behave poorly in your relationships, those relationships will deteriorate. If you are unfaithful with your finances, you will find at some point that you run out of money and now you're in the hole. If you are embittered towards somebody and slow to forgive, you can expect your heart to become hardened and in time uh, for God to work circumstances in such a way to drive you to your knees so that you have to repent. Why is He going to do all that? Because He's not going to let you go because you're one of His kids. You can also be sure that uh, from the time you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, he is committed to you sharing in his holiness. Also, Hebrews 12, which means he's going to bring circumstances to bear in your life and my life to make us more into the image of Christ. That's what James is talking about in James 1 when he says, count it all joy. Put it in the, in the plus column, the joy column, when you face various kinds of trials, knowing that the, fact that the ways that God is putting your faith to the test, and that's what he's doing. It's not a test so that you will either pass or fail. Good job, Brian, or you're out of the kingdom. Okay? It it's really is putting it to the test uh, so that you can develop spiritual muscles in that area of your Christian life. Count it all joy when you face various kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces hoopamone, patience, perseverance, Endurance, however you want to translate it, it basically means the ability to continue to live a life that honors God even though the pressure is always on. That's why he says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, stop looking for ways to escape your trial but recognize God's sovereign hand in it, and just develop those spiritual muscles. Keep, de- te- keep doing those exercises. Keep obeying God and living for God, even when the pressure's on, and pretty soon, you'll be able to bear up under it. If you've ever been through any kind of an athletic or a workout regimen where you're trying to build six-pack abs, now, I actually have six-pack abs. I just keep them on my daughter from gymnastics, but But if you don't have a set of six-pack abs, if you wanted to develop them, you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to do either a lot of sit-ups or planks or whatever exercises until such a time. And and guess what? There's a lot of energy that goes into that. There's a lot of discomfort that goes into that. A lot of distress and a a lot of exercises. And then over time, pretty soon, uh, I mean, my my daughter used to do something called V-ups. Who ever invented that? It's just an atrocious and nasty thing, okay? Sit-ups are hard enough. V-ups, where you raise, put your hands back, and then you go up and raise both of them and touch your toes, and you try it. Some of you going, oh, yeah, I can do that. My wife can do those all day long. I can do one improperly. And that was when I was in the best of my shape, okay? <laughs> uh, it's just, and it, but it really focuses on your core. Well, you know what? At one point, I got to where I could do like five. Okay? It took me uh it took me 3 months and I got to where I could actually do 5 properly. And I said, "Yep, I hit my goal. We're done." <laughs> uh yeah, you know, maybe it's push-ups. Maybe it's being able to do uh whatever it is. I remember when I decided I wanted to start riding a bike because my knees won't let me run anymore. And so I I would ride uh from the house out Uh, Two miles and then back to the house. Three miles and the next day back to the house. And then pretty soon I got to the point where I could ride all the way out to church. And then after I was done studying, ride all the way home. And then I realized the wind blows with you when you're coming out and the wind blows back. So, uh, yeah, I need to develop a little bit more endurance before I go back and do it. And I I still remember I got to the point where I could ride in the 30 mile an hour winds. And it was not very much fun. But it felt really good to be able to get home and not have to call my wife to come get me halfway home. It was awesome. Okay, but you know what? Trials are like that from a spiritual perspective, from a personal perspective. And, and, and when, you, when you step back and you realize that God works these kinds of circumstances out in our lives, not to punish us and not just to make us holy so we're ready to, for heaven. You, you do understand That no matter how holy your Christian life is, progressive sanctification is, uh, I don't know if, um, if you can track with me here or not, but when you get saved, you're here as far as sanctification practical sanctification and as you continue to learn scripture and put it into practice you start on an upward path at least you're supposed to some of us do a little bit of a back and then forth and and so it's going to be kind of that little jagged line and i think a lot of us have this idea that we're getting up close to so that that last step up into heaven will just be one last step you know from the basement onto the main floor okay but if you if you scroll the camera back, and you want to see your sanctification, even those of us that are perhaps the most sanctified on the planet. The, the, the squiggly line goes like this, and then that last step to heaven is literally up to heaven. It's an infinite step up that none of us get anywhere near close to. Okay, there's that's why we're to have let endurance have its perfect results so we can be fully mature, complete, fully mature in every area, no holes lacking in nothing. And those trials that God takes us through are not just to train us. They're they're not just to correct us. They also provide us an opportunity to glorify God when things are hard. Job one and two, Job goes through the loss of all of his possessions, the loss of uh, of his children, and to an extent, because of his faithfulness, he even has a separation in fellowship in his relationship with his wife. Because when all those trials hit her, and she loses her husband's health on top of all of it, that's what it takes for her to crack. And at that point, Job still hasn't sinned, he still praises God, saying, You talk as one of the foolish women talk. Shall we receive good from the hand and not evil? Empty I came from my mother's womb, and empty I'll go home. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you know what it took to get Job to mess up? To get Job to really trip up and sin against God? It took his friends. Some friends, huh? How many times have you been like one of Job's friends to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Why did Job go through all those Trials. Why did Job suffer all that loss? Did Job do anything wrong? According to Job 1, it's because he was the most righteous man on the planet. Job did not get singled out for that set of trials, for earthly reasons. They're all heavenly reasons. And when you read through the whole book, you'll see that God never answers to Job as to why. Because he's God, he doesn't have to answer to us. There are, listen, if you're a mature believer and you don't see that there's some sin that you committed, some weakness in your Christian life, uh, something that you need to learn... Then stop looking for the lesson you need to learn so that the trial ends and realize that, that God has you in this circumstance because it is the best way that you can glorify God by going through this. 2 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul points out for us in verses 3 to 5 that our God is the God of all comfort. And he comforts us when we go very, through various kinds of trials. And he does it so that we are therefore then able also to comfort others when they go through it. Do you know a lot of the things that mature Christians go through in this life is specifically to give them firsthand experience in that kind of suffering, in that kind of challenge, so that they can be of help and encouragement and instruction to others who are going to go through those same kinds of things? Sometimes I think when we look at the trials that we go through, we, 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 we look at the hardships and the challenges in our own Christian life. We have such a self-centered focus, don't we? I, w- I wish this was over. Why can't I have a life like this other life? Why do I have to go through this? Why does this have to be the, the cross I have to bear? Why is this what God has chosen for me? Lord, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. Why do I have to be the one with relational challenges? Why can't I be the one with the medical challenges? Why do I have to be the one with the medical challenges? Why can't I be the one with the earthly resource challenges? Why do I have to be the one with the earthly resources challenges? Why can't I be the medical one? You know what? It's all thinking about ourselves, right? You know who God's thinking about? Us. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. Whatever you're going through, whatever your circumstances are, you know why you're there? Because it is the best place you can be and glorify God. That's why. That's what the Bible teaches us. Do you believe it? Now, the question is, do you really believe it? And if you really believe it, if you really believe it, then the question becomes, okay, how do I go through it? How do I go through those kinds of challenges? How do I really get my heart fixed on, on trusting God in this whole thing and waiting on Him to work it out, however glorifies Him and whatever really is to what is best for me in my, circ- in my, my circumstance, not just personally, but ultimately eternally? How do I go through this trial in a way that honors God? How do I wait on God in times of trouble? Psalm 27 is a psalm that is written by David. You'll notice if you look in your Bible at Psalm 27 above verse 1, it says in in the New American Standard, it says a psalm that's in italics of David. Or you could even translate it by David. It's the a psalm is in italics because that's not actually part of the Hebrew text, but of David or by David is part of the Hebrew text. It's telling you who wrote the psalm. The reason that a psalm is supplied because we're in the book of what? Psalms. So many of the titles actually say a psalm. A psalm is Hebrew poetry written uh, in a poetic structure. And it's included in the book of Psalms because it is specifically been written and collected in order to be used to facilitate corporate worship, most of the time being put to music. So this is like an inspired hymnal for the Old Testament saints. It's written by David, which means it's even written before the temple. So when the people came to the tabernacle to worship God, to offer their sacrifices, both the animal sacrifices and the Passover and the, the rest of the required sacrifices, as well as the freewill offerings, etc., you come to God's presence and you want to offer up praise, you want to offer up thanksgiving, you want to give a sacrifice just to express how much you appreciate God or ask him to help you or forgive you or any of those kinds of things, you go to the, uh, you go to the tabernacle, the tent Uh, where the ark was kept. Later, it gets replaced by the temple which David's son Solomon builds. And David started to write psalms. When he brought the ark into Jerusalem, he starts to write psalms to be used to facilitate an expression of corporate worship in song and in him giving praise to God or, or calling out to God. Many of these psalms are written to teach a lesson while at the same time, facilitating uh, the the expression of worship through singing the psalm or or reciting the psalm as a corporate exercise in the hearing of God. For those of you who, uh, when you're doing your Bible reading, sit down and basically read through the Bible, when you get to the book of Psalms, it's important to recognize that these are not chapters. So the reason that it's a little bit of a slog sometimes and seems a bit repetitive to just start reading from Psalm 1 all the way to Psalm 150, and it seems like they, you know, have you ever noticed how they follow a similar structure? Well, the reason is because every psalm is an independent little expression of worship. It's, it, I mean, how many times have you sat down and read through our hymnal? That, would, would that not seem like a little bit more of a tedious exercise? Okay, Psalms is better than our hymnal because it's written under inspiration. But if you really want to use the Psalms in a way that's in keeping with the, the way that they were written and the reason for which they were written, then when you read a Psalm, start at the beginning by looking for an indication, especially in the first verse or two. Uh, some of them are a couple of verses, but anyways, look at the opening statement in the Psalm and see if it tells you what it's about. A lot of them are going to be a call to praise, a call to give thanks. Some of them are going to ask a question like the one that we have here. Some of them are going to make a declaration and then the rest of that Psalm is going to either answer that question, justify that declaration or, um, further explain that opening statement. And that's what we have here. Notice in verse 1, as we begin to look at the text just by way of introduction. Notice that David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread? Notice that this psalm begins with a question. He's got a declaration that is followed by a question, and he he essentially asks the same question two different ways. You see that? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now, what do you think the answer is? Well, nobody. And the second question, the Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? What do you think the answer is? Nobody. And then the rest of the psalm, essentially goes through and addresses the subject that he has just put together. When he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, the Lord is the defense of my life. In your Bible, you'll notice Lord is in all capital letters. What's that mean? That means that that's actually the covenant name for God in the original Hebrew text. That's the name Yahweh, the the personal name that God used to describe himself and identify himself with Moses and with the Israelites in an Old Testament context. This is his name that associates him on an individual, personal, relational level with his people in the Old Testament. So when David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, he's saying the Lord that I have a personal relationship with. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? This is like I, uh, us saying, "Lord, precious Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you are the light of my uh, uh, my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Lord Jesus is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? It's the name in an Old Testament context by which God identifies Himself. Not generally as God, but specifically as the the saving God of Israel who has a personal relationship with them because he made a promise that they are his people and he would save them. So David begins. And by the way, what do you know about David? You know that he's a man after God's own heart. He's a man that loves God, really committed to God. Let me ask you a question. Is David a perfect uh, saint? Is really at li- lives that kind of an upright, perfect life that you can model everything that he said and did, right? Well, except in the case of Uriah and his wife Bathsheba, right? And maybe a couple of other times when he failed royally. Notice the little joke there, failed royally? Yeah, yeah. That'll be on the quiz, by the way. Did you catch the joke? Anyhow, uh, you, you look at David's life. I mean, David, David lived a life pretty much free of mistakes, pretty much free of suffering the consequences of his own sin, pretty much free of any kind of persecution, any kind of threat to his life, any kind of hardship. He lived a really easy life, right? Uh, maybe exactly the opposite. It, from, the, from the time that David was a boy... Shepherding his father's sheep in the pasture lands outside of Bethlehem. What does David say when he goes before King Saul and says, Let me go fight this uncircumcised Philistine? You can't let him badmouth God like that. And he says, David, I can't let you go. He'll 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 squash you like a bug on a windshield. He says, Listen, when I was when I was younger, <laughs> what kicked tickles me is he's probably 15 or 16 at this point, and he says, when I was younger, I had to defend my father's flock from the lion and the bear. Okay? Even as a young man, this this guy knows what it means to go toe-to-toe with something that can take you out, right? And then when he goes and he defeats Goliath, he becomes then a, a soldier, and he becomes the best soldier in Saul's army. And pretty soon, everybody's going, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul gets jealous of him. And one day, in the palace, tries to pin him to a wall with a spear. You ever had your boss? Those are, a lot of you guys are military, right? My, you ever had your boss try to pin you to I don't mean verbally, okay? But have you ever actually had your boss try to pin you to the wall with a spear? David did. David spent the next years fleeing from Saul's presence. David went to war many times. David not only understood what it was like to have people out to kill him who were his enemies, he also knew what it was like to have people out to kill him that were his friends and that lied against him. On multiple occasions... He demonstrated his loyalty to God and his faithfulness to Saul even though Saul was trying to kill him. Listen, David is the kind of a guy that when he talks about trusting in God, he talks about waiting on God in the times of real trials and real struggles. You know, one of the things that uh, when I was younger, uh, at this point, I've been through uh, enough stuff that I don't hear this argument hardly ever anymore. But I remember when I first uh, got out of seminary and was pastoring a lot of people, uh, I would go, well, this is what you need to do. Well, you don't, you're not in my situation. You don't, you don't have any, you, th- that's fine for you because God is blessing you in this way. And that, 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 well, after a while, you've gotten shot at a few times, you've gone through some things and those kinds of charges can't be leveled against your faith has proven the test you know something david is a guy whose faith has been put to the test and on the other side he knows how to write about how to wait on god in times of trouble and in david's case his times of trouble include people trying to murder him including absalom and on it goes incidentally His son unjustly wanted to murder him and take away his throne. But you know, Absalom's chief counselor was Ahithophel. Do you know who Ahithophel was? Bathsheba's grandfather. Okay? When when David was ousted from Jerusalem by his son, he had some help from... Bathsheba's grandfather. So you notice how there's kind of a this is unjust behavior toward me, and yet at the same time I know I deserve some of this? Okay. If you've ever lived been in a mixed context in your trials and your circumstances, understand this. When David tells you how to wait on God in this psalm, he knows full well that, that waiting on God many times is not. Something you have to do just because you're totally righteous in the whole situation. David knows firsthand, has experienced firsthand what it's like to go through trials when he's innocent, when he's guilty, and when it's mixed. And what is it, where does he begin with this opening declaration, Yahweh is my light and my salvation? Some have suggested that light speaks of the source of light the ability to see and the author of my salvation or and uh, my salvation meaning the author of my salvation. Others take the light to be that which dispels darkness and thereby drives away fear and salvation as that which rescues me from trouble. One of the things that I just want to help you to understand here is that when you're reading the Old Testament there's a sense in which you have to put on Old Testament spectacles. When the word salvation and, and those, that whole word group in an Old Testament context is used, salvation, deliverance, rescue, etc., most of the time, three out of four times when that word group is used in the Old Testament, it refers to physical deliverance. Okay, A deliverance from earthly circumstances, not eternal salvation. When you come into the New Testament, the usage flips. Three out of four times or more, salvation, saved, uh, delivered-type words are most often in the New Testament referring to eternal salvation as opposed to deliverance from temporal consequences. That same word saved is used in Acts to refer to saving Paul from the drink when the ship went down in shipwreck. And it's also used when Peter says, repent and you will be saved, speaking of eternal salvation. So by default, your normal connection when you see the word saved or salvation in the Old Testament should be saved from my temporal circumstances. And that's the way David is using it here. The Lord is my light and my salvation, my rescue, my deliverance from what? From fearful, desperate, earthly trials and circumstances. He's not talking about my salvation in an eternal sense. He's talking about the one who delivers me from the threatening situations and circumstances in my life. In fact, you can see that as you work through the rest of verses 1 through 3. When he says, the Lord is the defense of my life. Notice, not the protection, the defense, the fortress of my eternal life, but of my actual physical life. Whom shall I dread? And then notice, this is the basis upon which he makes this the statement, he says, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. He's talking about having been delivered in the past from his earthly circumstances and from people who actually wanted to kill him. That's what the idea of devour my flesh, eat up my body. They, they wanted to literally kill me. That's why he says in verse 3, Though a host encamp against me, a host meaning a whole army, a massive number of people, my heart will not fear, even though war rise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. I shall be confident. The continuous idea is present in that last statement, I shall be confident. I am continually confident. And the word for confident means trusting. I am continually trusting. Trusting in what? Trusting in whom? In God. I'm not going to be afraid when I'm in various uh, threatening earthly circumstances. Because Yahweh is my light. Yahweh is the one that dispels the darkness so I can see that he He is in control and my life is in His hands. He is the one who delivers me. Who shall I fear? Even though I go on to the battlefield. Even though I know I'm not 100% without fault in, in, in pretty much anything in my life. I don't, I don't have to fear anybody because of the Lord, Yahweh, is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Let me think back to the past. When evildoers have come upon me to devour my flesh, trying to kill me. My adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Because God is the one who's in control. My life is in His hands. I remember um, when I was about 14, I think it was, uh, my family took a trip, and we went to Williamsburg and to Gettysburg and a bunch of places that were part of the history of uh, uh, the first century of America. And uh, I remember... Being on the field at Gettysburg, and I remember being in Virginia, and uh, I think it was in Manassas, anyways. Uh, maybe we were, maybe maybe we were somebody someplace else, and they were talking about what happened at Manassas. But Stonewall Jackson, you know how he got his nickname, because on the first day of battle, he's standing there, and the shells start to fire, and people are shooting. And he's up on a horse, and all the rest of his soldiers, they get down, and they're they're crouched down. They're hiding behind the trees. They're on their bellies prone, and he's sitting up there on the horse. General, get down. And he said something to the effect of, son, I am a Christian. God has ordained the day that I will die, and no tree will protect me from that shell. And he continued to sit on that horse like a stone wall. He just just had a trust in God that I just, I, I'm called to be courageous. I'm called to be a soldier. I'm called to lead by example. I do think a good example would be hiding behind a tree. But, but, but you just really appreciate his faith. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear, absolutely positively will not begin to fear. Why? Even though a war arise against me, in spite of this, I am continually trusting. Trusting in whom? Trusting in God. Say, well, how did you get there, David? How is it that you got to the place where, where you could be like that when your life was threatened? How did you get to the place where you could wait on God in times of trouble? No matter how threatening, no matter how devastating, no matter how fearful the situation is, how'd you get there? The answer is twofold. First, he fixed his eyes on being God's kind of person, and then he asked God for help to be God's kind of person. That's it. If you're looking for uh, how to wait on God in times of trouble... I think David shows us or tells us right here in Psalm 27, especially in verses 4 through 14. How do you wait on God in times of trouble? Number one, you fix your eyes on being God's kind of person. Look at verses 4 to 6. Fix your eyes on being God's kind of person. He says in verse 4, one thing, one thing I have asked from the Lord. And that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David says, there's one thing I ask from the Lord. One primary request. And that is what I'm going after with both hands. What is that? To be close to God. To be close to God. That's it. That I am continually seeking. One thing I ask, you know, when when we're in times of trial. Oh, when I'm in times of trial, I I notice uh, and then go back and adjust my heart and my mind and my requests. But I notice that by default when I'm in a difficult circumstance, relationally, practically, physically, whatever it is, I notice that my default is to ask God to work it out in a particular way. Now, you're probably not like that. You're probably like David, who just says, God this is really challenging. This is really hard. There's a lot of unfairness here. Or I dorked this up. And will you please work out the circle? I, I, I know that I dorked it up and what I'm suffering is only just a tiny temporal taste of what I really ought to be suffering. So thank you for that as well. Just help me be God's kind of person. That's probably the way you are. But for me, normally I'm asking for God to provide the opportunity that facilitates me uh, fixing it. Or that I'm asking God for the way I would like him to have it worked out. It's not David. Notice David when he says, one thing I've asked from the Lord. What is his one thing? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Interesting note here. The word temple means a temple Guess who built the temple? Solomon. When does he build it? After David dies. He's not talking about the earthly temple, is he? And he didn't use the word tabernacle here. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty. The word beauty, by the way, means beauty, graciousness, kindness, loveliness. To actually behold the loveliness the beauty the great the character and nature of god to actually see it to actually contemplate it to meditate in his temple to be near him where he resides and contemplate who he is and what he's like you know you know what david's saying the one thing i ask from the lord is the one thing I chase after all day, every day, and that's being God's kind of person, being close to God. The one thing he cares about, the one thing that he wants more than anything else, the one thing he has his heart fixed on, is being close to God. Notice that he explains Why? Because in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle in the secret place of his tent. He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. In other words, he'll take care. I know that he's taking care of me. I know that I'm in his hands. Hear me now. The Christian life. okay? being a Christian is a relational experience. Okay? It is if it's a religious duty, <laughs> then, then there's every reason for you to be questioning whether you're more a Pharisee uh, than you are a Christian. The Christian life is a relational experience, it's an intimate personal relationship with God. You can keep your uh, finger in Psalm 27. And turn to John 17 with me for a moment if you want to see this. John 17 and verse 3. Jesus says, and this is is the very night in which Jesus was betrayed. He's finished in the upper room. He's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he stops and he lifts his eyes to heaven and begins to pray in verse one, saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Father, it's the, it's the time that was fixed in eternity past. It's the time for me to go offer myself up as that once for all sacrifice for sins so that, we, so that I can secure eternal life for those that you have given to me. Notice then in verse 3, he defines what eternal life is. I think most people think of eternal life as living forever. Understand this. Everybody's going to live forever. Everybody is going to live forever. The question is, are you going to live forever in a right relationship with God, or are you going to live forever in the lake of fire together with the devil and his angels suffering the wrath of God you deserve for your sins? Everybody's eternal life is not just living forever. Verse 3, this is eternal life. This is Jesus speaking, defining eternal life for us. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, having eternal life, is having an intimate personal relationship with God. Forever. Actually being one of his people. Being in a right relationship with him as one of his children. That's eternal life. So when you go back to Psalm 27 and you look at verse 4 and you see that David says, The one thing I have asked from Yahweh, that I I am continually seeking, that I may dwell, that I may reside in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, that I may be in close communion and fellowship with God, my saving God, my glorious God, my wonderful God. That I may be in close, intimate communion and fellowship with Him all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to meditate in His temple. The word meditate means to reflect on something, to give attention to something, to think through something, to just continue to just contemplate God. How many times when you're in difficult circumstances do you you allow your circumstances and the temporal misery of it, the relational challenges of it, the physical suffering of it to, to overwhelm your concerns and your thoughts and you just focus on the here and now and the way things are in an earthly setting? And how many times do you actually mentally and spiritually, elevate your thinking above your temporal circumstances and just contemplate how good God is, how amazing and wonderful He is. Lots of people can go out. And Mike and I were talking about uh, 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 Baden-Powell going up the switchbacks and and the views and stuff like that. Uh, By the way, Mike and Katie had their 350th anniversary or whatever it was this week. 11 350 they're about the same time i've heard it both ways but anyways uh i think that's what she said it feels like no i'm just kidding um but uh they had their 11th anniversary and they went and they started saw some sights. and he was talking about how pretty he was they took a couple of pictures and that kind of stuff it's easy to see really amazing things in creation and go wow what an incredible god we must have right psalm 19 it's easy to watch a thunderstorm. It's easy to watch a sunrise. It's easy to see the ocean. It's easy to look through a microscope. In my case, at my age, you know, I, as I've gotten more into music, my, because of my kids, I've gotten more into various things that I never would have been interested in previously. Uh, it's amazing when I, when, like some of you, my wife makes cards now. It's all Gina's fault, but she makes cards now. But I, I get a card from Gina, or I see some of the cards my wife makes, or some of the others of you ladies, and I look, uh, and especially like the, the craftsmanship that goes into these, the colors that are chosen and put together with that swishy-swashy uh, tape stuff, right? And I go, wow, look at those colors. Look how well they go together. And I would have never thought to put them together that way. Uh, and then Kath goes, oh, well, that's Gina, uh, and um, but then I then I think about the God who invented the colors I think about God who invented all of those colors and how well they go together and how many different combinations actually look good and how every once in a while something just amazingly pops you ever seen a painting like that ever seen a night sky like that or that twilight sky oh, listen do we not have an amazing God okay Have you ever tried to think that same way about God's attention to the details of the circumstances of your life? And how with a paintbrush, He is orchestrating the circumstances circumstances of your life and addressing the attitudes of your heart and your desires I mean we we see when he works something out and it's like oh wow I didn't think we were going to have enough to make that payment or whatever and suddenly the money just shows up there's a gift to God or whatever or oh wow I I didn't know how I was going to have this conversation it all worked out well have you ever noticed how you get shaped sometimes way more by the ones that don't go well You become way more like Christ as a result of going going through things that don't go well as opposed to just the things that do go well. Have you ever considered how amazing God is to be able to work all things together for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purposes? I have a number of things that the end result wasn't good. But when I look at how that has shaped me into a guy that is useful in training up the next generation, useful even in my own household, useful here, useful in uh, relationships I have with people around the world. Well, we have a pretty amazing God. You know what David is saying? Uh, Don't just just put on a happy face, okay? Fix your eyes not just on God generally. Fix your eyes on being God's kind of person. Commit yourself, not just to, in like a detached way, and living above your circumstances, Instead, David says, The one thing I've asked from the Lord, that's what I'm continually seeking, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty, the loveliness of the Lord, and meditate in his temple, to think through how great he really is. Notice how your view of God just starts to increase. Notice how, even without having the answers, you can trust in him to have the answers. Notice how when you start to realize that that God does love you, that you are one of His people, He's eternally committed to you, and the closer you get to Him, the more you just become like Him, the more you're able to just entrust yourself and the way it all works out to Him. David concludes in in verses 5 and 6 this way. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. He'll hide me in his innermost dwelling place. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. Literally, in the hiding place in his tent, he will hide me. Or in the secret place in his tent, he will secret me. It's the same word used twice. Really cool. He will lift me up on a rock. You have to be a military man to understand this. If you're up on a rock, guess what? You and your little swords can't reach me. That's his point. You bring me up on a rock where my enemies cannot assail me. Verse 6. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises of the Lord. I will not attribute my successes to my own strength to my own insight to my own cleverness i will sing praises to the lord because i know that i'm his and i know that he is the one that is orchestrating all of this you want to know what the secret to waiting on god is make your singular desire You fix your eyes on being god's kind of person and the more you fix your eyes on him, the more you dedicate yourself to being his kind of person, the more you see him for who he really is, and the more you'll be able to recognize the many and varied ways he's working everything out ultimately for your good. And keep in mind, your good doesn't mean that you don't go through trials. And, going, uh, and, and for your good doesn't mean that your faith doesn't get put to the test. And, go, uh, and working it out for your good doesn't mean that it plays out well and finishes the way you would like it to finish every time. But it will always finish out in the way that is best for you, spiritually and eternally. You believe that? If you do, then the second lesson that we learn here from David is, how do I I learn to wait on God in times of trouble? Number one, fix your eyes on being God's kind of person, and then ask God to help you be God's kind of person. You'll never be able to do this in your own strength, so ask him for help. Notice the two requests that he has. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, be gracious to me and answer. And then, verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. God, I want you to help me. Help me continue to trust you and seek you. I'm doing my part. Help me to continue to do my part and teach me so that I am better at doing my part in waiting on You and trusting in You regardless of the trouble that I face. Verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious uh, to me and answer me. Hear my prayer. Answer my prayer. And on what basis, well, what basis can I say, God, answer my prayer? Verse eight. When you said, "Seek my face," my heart said to you, "Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Answer my prayer, because I'm not asking selfishly. Answer my prayer, because I'm not asking you to cater to me. Answer my prayer. Because I really am seeking to be God's kind of person. Seek my face, God says in the Old Testament. And David says, And my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I seek. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Don't abandon me nor forsake me, O God, of my salvation or of my deliverance. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn away in anger. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have kids or have ever been kids? Should be most of us. Okay? So, if you have kids or have ever been a kid or are a kid presently, okay? Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time when one of your children did something and you were so upset that you turned away in anger, couldn't look at him, didn't want to talk to him, go to your room, upset or vice versa. When you were a kid and you did something, uh, you got caught at something, got caught in a lie or whatever, and your dad said, go to your room, I'll talk to you later. Now, turning away in anger, that idea of I'm upset at you and I, 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 mean, I still remember uh, There was a, I still remember the day, I don't remember what day it was, but I do remember a day when my son disobeyed my wife like a dozen times within two hours. And we had so many trips to the, we got to the, when we hit the last one, I said, son, I cannot believe this, go to the, uh, get the spanker, go to the bathroom and I got to go pray, and then we will talk. God was, I was a little upset. Okay, that's me. (laughs) Um, And uh, so I had to work through it in my heart. Uh, Now, tell me something. Does God have a reason to turn away from, can you think of any time when God had a reason to turn away from David in anger? Maybe the little taking Bathsheba when she was somebody else's wife maybe trying to cover it up, maybe conspiring to have her husband murdered so he could have her for himself and any number of other times that are recorded in Scripture. You know something? None of us are perfect. None of us are without sin. When David is honest in his prayer, he says, God, hear my prayer. When I cry with my voice, be gracious and answer me. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. Because I know there are times when I deserve to, have, to be turned away in anger because I haven't been uh, obedient. I haven't been faithful. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Why? Because you've told me to seek your face, and I'm seeking your face. You ever sin the same way more than once or maybe even as a pattern? And you realize that it seems hypocritical to ask God for forgiveness again, and so you don't? Or you really have trouble figuring out how to even ask for forgiveness because you've sinned the same way so many times? Well, here's how you do it. Lord, Lord. I know you des- I-, I deserve to have you turn away, but please don't because I really do want a relationship with you and you told me to seek your face and so an obedi- I'm not going to compound my disobedience. I- I've-, I've had people say to me many times and-, and many different people say to me, well, you know, I- I- I'm not going to do that now because, you know, I know my heart isn't right. So I'm not going to obey God at this point because my heart isn't right and I know that he doesn't like hypocrisy you realize that statement is doubly hypocritical? If you know you're being disobedient and you don't repent, you do realize all you're doing is multiplying your sin. You, You need to turn from your sin and ask for forgiveness, even if you have to wrestle your heart to the ground and beat it with a stick. Well, that's what David's doing. Don't hide your face from me. Do not turn uh, your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Don't abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. The idea of taking him up is basically gathering him in. You know, my my parents may abandon me, but I know, God, you'll always welcome me and greet me with open arms and gather me up. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. The idea of a level path, uh, there's a little debate about this. Does Does a level path mean a righteous path as opposed to an unrighteous path? Or a level path in the sense of it's been leveled out so that it's flat and without obstacles so I can walk on it? I think it's that ladder. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. I've got lots of obstacles. I've got lots of people trying to trip me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a path that's level because I really do have challenges here. It really is hard to be God's kind of person here. Don't deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries because false witnesses have risen against me, such as breathe out violence. I really do have people that want to kill me. In my experience, and I, I mean, there are lots of people that have gone through way tougher lives than I have, but in my experience, the, t- the most difficult trials to go through are the relational ones. The people that you have the, the closest relationships with, the tightest bond with, a best friend in seminary, family members. Those are the ones that, from my perspective, hurt. Maybe it's just me, but from my perspective, they hurt the most. It really comforts me when, uh, when I realize that there's nothing that I go through that compares with what Jesus went through when Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. And all the rest of the disciples fled. Where did Jesus find comfort? His father was right there. Where does David find comfort? Our father was right there. Verse 13, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Where is the land of the living? Where is it? Is that heaven? Where is the land of the living? We're in it, right? I would have given up. Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the less, I believed that I would see God work it out for my good in this life. That's why he closes with this final exhortation Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, or indeed, wait for the Lord. You remember the question that he started with in the beginning? The Lord is my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense or the protection of my life, whom shall I dread? You know what the answer is? Nobody. So then what do I do? Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. You remember, the idea of a heart is not just the organ that beats uh, uh, the circulation of your blood so that you live. And the heart is not the seat of your emotions. The heart is the seat of your inclinations, your will, your determination, your thinking from a biblical perspective. Let your heart take courage. Be strong. And wait for the Lord. Do you know what's re- interesting? Do you know the word Wait. Here is the word that most Bibles will translate as hope. This word normally is translated hope. I like the word wait better because in English, the word hope kind of really loses its sense. When we talk about hoping for something, normally we're thinking of something that we hope for or wish for. Right. With a more or less likely chance that it happens. Like. Like. Maybe you might say, uh, if you were in Ohio, you might say, I hope we have a sunny day. Well, that's a coin toss. Here in the summer, you might say, I hope it rains today. Yeah, that's a, that's a coin toss that lands on the edge, right? Uh, uh, I hope I get this for Christmas. I hope she says yes. I hope that I get a promotion. I hope, I hope, I hope, right? Right? almost sound like one of the seven dwarves. I hope, okay? It's it's just wishful thinking. I hope my team wins. When when you see the word hope in the Bible, it's always hoping with a confident expectation that it's going to happen. Hope in the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, hope in the Lord or wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Waiting means that you're sure it's going to happen, right? It may not be right away, but it's going to happen. Well, if you're one of God's children, can you count on God rescuing you? Can you count on God working it out ultimately for your good? And his glory and and keep in mind the definition of your good is not the way that would make you most happy in a temporal sense, but the way that will make you most happy eternally, most thankful eternally, and most like Christ now and forever. We all go through many and various trials. And and. I can promise you whatever trial you're in or combination thereof, thereby divine design if you're one of his people. It is. I I know that as sure as I'm standing here. The question isn't whether we will face trials. The question is, are you going to continue to fix your heart and mind, to fix your eyes on being God's kind of person as you go through those trials and ask God not to get you out of the trial, not to work out the trial the way you want it, but ask God to, to really help you to be God's kind of person. Even when you trip and stumble along the way, asking God consistently to help you be God's kind of person as you go through it. I think if you, if you really dedicate, well I know, because uh, I can tell the difference between when I'm focused like this and when I'm not. If you focus your attention just on being God's kind of person as you go through trials, you'll find that the trials really, the whole complexion of it changes. And you'll actually start to see the hand of God at work, not just when it works out the way you would like it, but many times even when it works out the way you wouldn't like it, because you can see that he's right there with you and he's got good reasons and you can see the changes in you and He really is worthy of our worship and praise. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the trials that you bring upon us. Thank you for the lives uh, that are recorded in Scripture, that they are honest recollections. They are accurate representations. Uh, They are factual presentations of uh, the people that you have made your own in the past. The fact that David does not have a record of a sinless life, but rather a very sinful life as well as a very spiritually heroic life is a great illustration to us that none of us are going to be perfect either. And you didn't save us because you needed perfect people. You saved us because we are sinful, flawed failures of people that you are able to make into instruments of righteousness. so, Lord, increase our faith in you. Continue to bring the trials upon us necessary to draw us near to you and give us by your spirit everything we need to fix our eyes on you and to live for you until you return for us or call us home. In Christ's name, amen.